0: Let's turn to Revelation chapter 14 this evening. Revelation 14. I have this opinion based on what I saw more than what I could hear because I had headphones on. But I have this opinion that you guys really worship the Lord this evening with all of your heart. And that's the way we need to worship God all the time. Not just not just when we feel good. As a matter of fact, we should worship the Lord especially when we're dealing with trials. David did it all the time. He worshiped the Lord. I mean, David was writing songs when he was about to get killed. Or at least he thought he was going to be killed. And he would write us song and say, Lord, help! <laughs> and that's why we can't stop praising and worshiping the God that we know. And I hope you know him, because you need to know him. You need to know him. Well, I want to begin by reading verse 1 of this chapter, because it's been a while since we've been here. A few weeks because of the holidays and all. So let's go to Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Now we're going to study verses 8 through 13, but uh, we need to kind of catch up to where we've been. So if you remember, we spent a lot of time in Revelation chapter 13 that dealt with the antichrist and the false prophet, which is yet to come, of course. We we don't know who the antichrist is, but we got a pretty good glimpse of what he's going to be like. And uh, the possibilities that there's going to be a a, a tremendous uh uh islamic connection to all of that and we we talked a lot about that back in chapter 13 there was a, i think about eight studies in that so if you haven't heard them uh, go ahead and, and sign up for them and, and you'll you'll get them on cd and listen to them but when so chapter 13 was all about darkness but now we come into chapter 14 and and it begins with light it says then i looked and john the uh, the apostle says then i looked and behold A lamb standing on Mount Zion, and and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we've already talked about the mark of the beast. We've talked about what could be on the foreheads of people and on their right arms, or even hands. But now, the contrast is, here are 144,000 who have his father's name, the name of the lamb, or the father's lamb, the, the the lamb's father on their on their foreheads, so what a contrast. Which name would you rather have? I think that's kind of the question we need to kind of ask ourselves. So they have their uh, father uh, father's name and, and the lamb's father's name written on their foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder, and I and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps, and they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures. And the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. And then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. So. As I said, it's it's been a a good while since we've been here in the book of Revelation, so that means that we have to do uh, this bit of of review of our first two studies in chapter 14 to get caught up. Now initially we looked at the contrast between the darkness of chapter 13 and the glorious light of the Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Mount Zion in Jerusalem, along with the 144,000 who will be taught a new song uh, from before the throne. It is a victorious song, only, that only they can sing. This is not a song for the church, it is a song for the 144,000. We talked about that back then. They are, uh, and they sing this victorious song because they will not be overcome by the beast. They will not be overcome by the beast. Now, in our last study, that was, that was the, the study previous to the last study, but in our last study we focused our attention on five characteristics that are given in verses 4 and 5 as a description of the sanctified lives of the 144,000. Very quickly, those five characteristics are, first of all, they were spiritual and, and, and physically celibate. So there was a spiritual and physical celibacy, and, and I say that in the past tense, but it's actually in the future that is going to happen. These 144,000 will have a spiritual and a physical celibacy. And we talked a little bit about that. That yes, they would not be, they would not be defiled uh, in the sense of, of, of having any relations whatsoever because they were, and, and they are, I should say, going to have a very important role in the, in the last days during the time of the tribulation. So they were given this... Uh, role of having spiritual and physical celibacy secondly they will be one with christ and they'll be sold out for him for they will follow christ wherever he goes so they will have that kind of connection with jesus they are the first fruits of the tribulation period this is the third point they are the first fruits of the tribulation period which means they are the first part of the harvest of the tribulation period they will speak the truth for in their mouth there will be found no deceit that's the fourth characteristic they will have no deceit in their mouth. They will only speak the truth. And lastly, they will be without fault or blemish, meaning that they are sanctified and set apart. Now, it's interesting that aside from, let's say, the first point or the first characteristic, uh, because uh, the Lord wants us to be spiritually celibate. In other words, we only serve the Lord, uh, and and we you know we, we're not to be uh, you know committing spiritual adultery by worshiping idols as well, but. Uh, we don't. We don't have. We're not bound to physical celibacy, of course, but in that time, these 144,000 will. Yet the characteristics of following the Lord wherever He goes isn't that what we we need to do as believers today? Uh, the the characteristic of of of, uh, of speaking uh, no deceit, of, of speaking the truth. Uh, this is part. That's one of the characteristics of the believer in Jesus Christ. Of having no deceit found in us. Of of, of being blameless. Not sinless, but blameless. Having that kind of characteristic. So all of these things are magnified in these 144,000 when they appear on the scene during the time of the tribulation period. Now, we ended our study in verses 6 and 7 last time in dealing with the proclamation of what is called the everlasting gospel. Now, We did mention that there wasn't a a difference with what the gospel is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news. The word gospel, of course, means good news. But there was an application that was given to us in the statement that the angel gives in this proclamation. And, And and it is a strong exhortation by the angel urging people to worship the Lord God as the Creator. Worshipping the Lord God as the creator. Now, I mentioned this last time, but I want to kind of emphasize one quick thing on this. And that is, think about what is one of the main things that the world, the academic world today, or the, um, as we can put it, the uh, humanistic world today, believe. What do they teach? What, What are all the high schools and colleges and universities in our country teaching as a whole in liberal arts colleges? They're teaching... Evolution. That there is no God, and therefore there is no God that really created the heavens and the earth. Well, we we can go on and on in this in this debate on on this one point. But let me just let me just say that it takes a lot of faith to believe in evolution. Just as much or more than it takes faith in believing that God said in Genesis 1:1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's why I continue to believe that the, evolu- the evolution today, as being taught as true, is still really only a theory, because they haven't really proven it to be true. And we, we can go on and on about that. But here's the thing: isn't it interesting that the angel is saying, folks on this earth who have been who have had their mindsets focused on evolution, hey, there's a creator worship Him. Because that's exactly what this angel says. Fear God and worship Him. And and, and he mentions very, very clearly here, Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So the strong exhortation is that the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who started it all, is also the one Who will end it all? You need to worship Him. This is going to be, by the way, the last call to a wicked and apostate world for the hour of judgment will now have come. So this angel will be tasked with awakening the people from their spiritual darkness and focus them back on the true God instead of worshiping man. Because in reality, the humanistic philosophies of this world today Only point man to man, not man to God. So it's time for us all to tell people there is a God. And you need to worship Him. Because there's going to be an angel that's going to tell them that, and it's going to be the last call. Y'all are familiar with that phrase, the last call? Last call, before the lights go out, you better worship Him. What the angel is saying is is, God's judgment is here, so choose whom you will serve. You've got to choose now. And making no choice is a choice. And we need to be like Joshua who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We choose. We make that choice. So this is what the angel is saying to those living during the time of the tribulation period. They are as we are, To worship the creator and not the things that he has created. We have a similar calling. The similar calling is that we need to awaken the people in this generation from the spiritual darkness they are in by pointing them to Jesus Christ. So as we move on now. We find a second angel that is mentioned in our text that will speak of the destruction of Babylon. And then a third angel that comes to warn of eternal doom. To all those who will worship the beast and receive his mark. So let's read our text this evening in verse 8. It says, uh, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Stop for a moment and think about this. You know, all of the critics of the gospel, all the critics of, of, of Christianity and all, you know, they, they, they like to emphasize usually the extremes of the faith, you know, to say, well, you know, all Christians ever do is preach fire and brimstone, you know. It's all about fire and brimstone. It's all about judgment. No, it's not. We know better than that. How interesting. And I, and I mean, there are other mentions along the way, but, the, but, but it's in the book of Genesis in dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah, that fire and brimstone are mentioned and are used by God for judgment. And then we go to the very end of the ages and it's mentioned again. In between, what is there? God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's truth, God's standards that we are to abide by God. You know, throughout all of Scripture, And in the center of it all is the cross of Jesus Christ. So you see the way, you know, the world likes to uh, deal with the minds of people. So, yes, there's judgment. I mean, it is throughout the scriptures. I'm not saying there isn't judgment mentioned. I mean, let's face it, the book of... Uh, in, the, uh, in, in the Hebrew scriptures I mean the, the very prophets themselves but they were foretelling a time that we are studying now in the book of Revelation there were times of judgment along the way where they judge, where God said to Israel I'm going to judge you if you don't get back to being obedient to me and they weren't obedient they were rebellious and God judged them but he judged them and then he what did he do? He restored them. God's about restoration with his people. The warning to the world is, I'm going to judge you, but you need to come to me. If you come to me, you'll be safe. Because I created you to love you and for you to love me. So here, here's the thing. There's mention here of, of, of this torment of fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And this is another interesting thing I want to mention very quickly because, uh, you know, a lot of times we wonder, you know, this, this is really talking about judgment that, that is it, it within the, the realm of the final judgment. And we say, is God present even in hell? And remember, God is present everywhere. The only difference is that those in hell will not worship Him except it when their knee will finally bow to him but it won't save them you see we need to be saved before and we need to think about that before not later not after to some to some degree there there's this problem with with even Christians who say that, well, there really is no hell. No, there is a hell. It's in the Bible, and we need to take note of it. Because if there is no hell, then the majority of the book that we study so so preciously and so dearly would not matter. It does matter. The Lord has warned of eternal judgment. And so we need to believe that it's, it's something that's going to take place. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Notice how long this judgment's going to be. How long this punishment is going to be. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So that's very clear then of, the, of those in the tribulation period. If they are, if they are marked with this, this mark of the beast, on their forehead or on their hand. And this is this is it. I mean, there's there's no escaping this judgment. And I'll talk about that in a moment. <laughs> and here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Now we're going to deal more with Babylon because we need to go back here to verse 8 where it tells us that another angel followed saying Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And so we are going to deal more with Babylon when we get to chapter 17 and 18 but we need to know a little bit and we need to understand a little bit about Babylon to better comprehend the context of this passage here in chapter 14. Here we are made aware that Babylon is a great city so that is is true based upon the word of god that babylon is a great city and prophetically it is referred as that in much of the scriptures but it is important to recognize that it is more than a city babylon is more than just a city babylon is uh, can be as understood as a nation we've often talked about the babylonians uh, That's speaking of a nation. And and, uh, when we talk about the Babylonians, we sometimes deal with a conquering army. So we're seeing that they're a nation, they're they're a people, uh, they're a people group, they're they're an ethnic group as it were, they're a conquering army. Oftentimes it refers, Babylon refers to an ideology or if you will, a, a philosophy. If you want to get deeper, a religious system. But not just a religious system, a commercial system, as well as a political system. Now, stop and think, and I mentioned this, I believe, last time or the time before, when we were dealing with the issue of Islam and the importance of Islam and the significance of Islam today as it pertains to the coming of the Antichrist, that Islam indeed is not just a religion. It isn't a religion. In fact, I mean, it truly is a false religion, but, but nonetheless, it isn't just a religion. It is a commercial system as well as a political system and more a political system than it is a religious system. So think about that in terms of what Babylon is as we study Babylon here in the next few chapters. And all of this, by the way, stemming from the evil character that is found in the historic Babylon itself. And I will talk about that when we get to chapter Uh, Chapters uh, 17 and 18. But Babylon has been a corrupting force ever since the time of Nimrod in the book of Genesis by the way and the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis and well into the Babylonian Empire. It was the center of occultic worship and even then it was a religious and commercial center. And John is telling us that Babylon's influence has lured the nations into immorality. And I can assure you that it is not just spiritual immorality, but spiritual as well as physical, sexual immorality. Because that is a part of the religious system of Babylon. We'll see that when we get to these other chapters. And so that we see running rampant, even in our day and time, this very kind of attitude of immorality. There is a tremendous amount of immorality in this world today. Now, most of us would 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 say probably when we deal with percentages, the highest percentage of the immorality is sexual, uh, of 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 the sexual nature. So, sexual, sensual, you know, uh, dealing with the senses and all, dealing with the flesh, as it were. But there is there is a move. To, to, to make spiritual immorality the rule of the day, because it, 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 that's what separates the Christian, the Jew, the, the Jewish, the Judeo-Christian. Okay, because we have to remember what, where we learned this came from. Of course, the Old Testament. So we have the, we have the Old and the New Testament. We have the Hebrew Scriptures, and we have the New Covenant given to us uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have all of this. And it's being attacked today. A- and, and at the center of it is, is a religious system that deals with immorality. So we see it ra- running rampant in our day and time and, and age. And it will grow more and more intense as the return of the Lord draws near. Think about this. I, I mean, I'm, a, I, I'm a, appalled sometimes when I watch TV. And, and you know, years ago, you couldn't, you, you couldn't hear any... Uh, uh, curse words, as it were, or uh, words that uh, you know were, were forbidden on, on on TV. Now, even on regular TV or cable, you you know, or satellite. Uh, I mean, it's like, whoa, man! Did you hear what they just said? You know, so profanity is is now rampant in our in our society. I can remember back in the '80s. whoa oh my goodness! Anybody remember the '80s? Wow. I remember back in the 80s when I was teaching high school, uh, that that kids were, were were using profanity freely as if it was just the way they talked, and I, boy, I had to do a lot of correcting, and and real correction. I mean, you know, uh, I don't want to get into it. Some of those bodies are still hanging on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it didn't happen that bad that way, but I mean, it, it, but it was incredible it, back then. Can you imagine today? What we, what we need to teach our children about the standard of, of righteousness. What does it tell us in the book of Proverbs? Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And people would rather live in sin, not calling it that, but live in sin rather than live in righteousness. But we're the oddballs, we're the nuts. Because we want to honor God. We want to honor the name of Christ. We want to honor the cross of Jesus Christ. We want to honor the risen Lord and Savior of our lives. You know, we we get attacked for that. That's okay. Don't worry about it, because we know how all of this ends. That's why we're in the book of Revelation, so we can see that. So figuratively, we see a harlot or a prostitute Here in this passage, persuading a man into immorality by filling him so full of wine that he can no longer resist her ways. Did you read that? It says, as you go on, In verse 9, if anyone worships a beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. I want you to consider something. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah 50. Now the tie-in to all of this, of course, is the immorality, the spiritual immorality that is that is being uh, uh, promulgated by by Bab, the, the the Babylonian ideal, as it were, or the Babylonian religious and 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 uh, perverse religious system. In Jeremiah 50, verse 38, it says, "A drought." is against her waters, and they will be dried up, for it is the land of carved images. I want you to take note of this last last sentence in the verse. For it is the land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. Do Do you notice the word insane there? They are insane with their idols. People today have become crazy about their idols. Insane about it. whatever they make as an idol becomes their God, in essence. A land of carved images. Paul walked into the city of Athens and saw carved images everywhere. Until he ran into this one monument that said to the unknown God. And he used that To tell the philosophers on Mars Hill, I want to talk about that unknown God. You've got all of these other carved images. You know the unknown God? I know the unknown God. To you, he's unknown. To me, he's the God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the God that came to us in Jesus Christ. But they're insane with their idols. Turn, turn to the next chapter, Jeremiah 51, verses 7 through 10. It says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that, that made all the earth drunk. You, you see the influence of the world? Babylon is a type of the world, just like Egypt is a type of the world as well, in, in, in various different ways and sometimes in similar ways. Babylon is, 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 is here to influence. The enemy uses Babylon, And the Babylon system, and the Babylon religious system, and commercial system, and and, and political system, to influence. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. But I want you to notice, it's in the Lord's hands. Babylon cannot act outside of what the Lord will allow to use. And then it says, the nations drank her wine. Therefore, the nations are deranged. You know how crazy they are about their idols now they 're deranged they 've gone off the deep end. Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her, take bomb for her pain. perhaps she may be healed we We would have, have uh, we would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her, and let us go everyone to his own country for her judgment reaches to heaven. That is lifted up to the skies. The Lord has revealed our righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord. Our God. God used Babylon. As a matter of fact God used the Babylonians didn't he? To correct Israel. But the Babylonians on their own decided to do more against Israel. Than God wanted them to do. So God says I'm going to judge you all the more and greater for what you did. So keep that in mind in this passage. Then I want you to turn over to Isaiah 21 verse 9. Because this is what, where we see this statement concerning Babylon being fallen and fallen twice. It says, and look, here comes a, chari- a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then, then he answered and said, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground eventually all of the false gods and all the false images that man has raised up for themselves, God's going to destroy. Let's, let's just put it that way now. God's going to destroy these images. But the point is that Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Now, in one sense that is true. I want to talk about the fact that uh, to, to mention it twice like that is not a mistake of the scribes, uh, you know, that they, they kind of just repeated a statement. No, no, it, there's a reason. The first reason has to do with the fact that Babylon at first was destroyed, uh, was, was defeated. Uh, the Babylonians were defeated by the Assyrians first, and then later on they were dece- defeated by the Persians. So in a sense they were defeated twice. As we look at Babylon in the future, as we look at that system now carried over in the prophecies to where we are talking about now in the book of Revelation, Babylon is going to be doubly judged. That's why it says Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So that's why it's not a mistake or an oversight of a scribe, but it just means that Babylon is in for a double portion of divine judgment. It is in for a double portion of divine judgment. Her doom is certain, and it is so certain that she also appears as already fallen. Notice it says, is fallen. I mean, it's already a done deal, in other words. At some point in time, whatever is going to arise as Babylon in the future is going to already be destroyed. In other words, there's no hope for Babylon. And then I want you to notice that judgment will be complete for this religious and commercial system. If you will turn to Psalm 75, Psalm 75, and in verse 7 it says, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. So God is God when He does that, isn't He? God can put down anybody, He can raise up whoever. So in essence, this is a very true statement. God is a judge, He puts down one, He exalts another. But notice verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. Now, the symbolism of a red cup in, in Scripture, the, the continuity of this particular picture is that the red the color of red is a symbol of blood the blood of judgment so here is the wine that is red it is fully mixed and he pours it out the pouring out has to do with judgment when the when the priests poured out cups at the altar what was that about blood has to be shed To atone for the sin. For if there is no atonement, then there is judgment. You see the importance of blood in the pictures given to the Jewish people in the tabernacle and in the temple. Where did it come from? Well, all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Where even though blood is not mentioned, what is mentioned is the, 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 prepare, the preparation of skins to put upon Adam and Eve which is an implication that animals were killed so that the skins would be used as covering for their sin so blood being shed even back then so understand that wine is red it is fully mixed and he pours it out surely it's dregs now the dregs of course if you think about dregs Maybe today you think about coffee, you know, and you get all the the coffee grinds, you know, we call them grinds, but sometimes we call them the dregs, and it's just what is left over after, you know, some process of making coffee or, or tea or, uh, you know, so it's always whatever is left over, and when you think about wine, what is usually left over, you know, I'm not thinking about Lucy and, you know, her, you know. Um, I love Lucy's in, in segment where she crushes grapes with her feet and all of that. But they still do that in some places. It's, it's what is at the bottom. I mean, they're crushing the thing for the juice, but it's what's left over. And who wants patas on your, you know. Okay, I'll just try to see if you're awake with me. All right. So, so anyway, the thing, the thing about it is, is the dregs is, is, is waste. It's, it's just nothing of value. And yet he says, Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. They think they have got the whole world to themselves now. And they're going to drink all that which is wasted and waste, just refuse. So you see, the nations having drunk the wine of the fornication of Babylon will in reality have drunk of the wine of the wrath of God. Bottom line. And don't think, by the way, that because we are the United States of America, that we are so much better than the rest of the world as a nation. When we as a nation have disregarded God's standards for life and living, when we have encouraged ungodly unnatural practices and sought to protect them over and above the churches in America that stand for the truth of the word of God and the cross of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel of Christ do you think we as a nation will go unscathed but there continues to be hope before the return of Jesus Christ and that hope comes to us from 2nd Chronicles chapter 7 and i want and i want to give this in a a, a more expanded version, because usually we go to verse 14 right away. But I want you to start at verse 12. When the Lord appeared to Solomon in the evening, and Solomon had been praying unto, unto the Lord, and the Lord said to Solomon by night, I have heard your prayer, and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Verse 13, God says to Solomon, When I shut up the heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts and devour the land, or send my pestilence among my people. Now, I want you to stop and think about this verse. Because he says, When I shut up heaven and there is no rain. What is it a description of? It is a description of a judgment. A judgment that must come upon Israel because of their disobedience. At some time, at some point in time, that was going to happen. But I want you to notice that he does not say, if I shut up heaven and there's no rain. He doesn't say, if. That's conditional. He says, when. Very clear. When I shut up heaven, which means, I'm going to judge Israel eventually. Eventually I will. Why? Because God knows from beginning to end, and the end from the beginning, the things that he's going to have to do. Because he's seen it all already. So he says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, not if, but when, or send my pestilence among my people, when I do these things, the hope is this, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Is there still hope here in our country? Yes, there's always hope. As long as we remember that we as God's people are to pray for this nation. We as God's people. I know this is about Israel. I know that the, the, you know, ultimately this is about Israel. But, but, but God's spiritual teachings are for us. and 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 we have seen too much now in in our government in our in our politics and political system the way that the nation is is right now shutting doors to churches and to ministries military chaplains being told that they cannot pray in the name of Jesus Christ if they're christian chaplains isn't that a ridiculous statement? But this country is trying to stand on, on, on ridiculous ideals and philosophies that will not and do not hold up with God. And what is sad today is that the nations, generally speaking, the nations are being prepared to embrace both the commercial and religious Babylon as they will be brought into power by the Antichrist and the false prophet. And the reality is this. The system itself is going to go down and yet the world is ready to receive it. The system doesn't work. And the world knows it and yet it's going to receive it anyway. And that's... What is sad? I mean, that's what you call crazy. Crazy. Insane. Deranged. Just like what we saw in those passages in Jeremiah that mentioned the insanity of it all. The insanity of, 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 of idol worship. The insanity of spiritual immorality and spiritual idolatry. It used to be, and, it, and it, maybe it still happens today, I'm, I'm sure it does, but it used to be a lot of times, you know, people in business would go to church just so they could pass out business cards. Oh, if you pass out a business card or two around, it's okay. You know, if you were trying to help somebody out, and you have something that could help them. What I'm saying is to pass it out because you only come to church for your business and not for God. Not for Jesus. Not to worship Him. Do you understand the difference? I don't want anybody to think that you're afraid to give a business card to somebody now. Because Charlie will see you and then the wrath will come out of my eyes. No, no. We can weigh things out. Okay. Well, As we get to verse 9, a third angel will, will warn of impending eternal destruction and judgment for those receiving the mark of the beast. Now, we we need to understand that it will not be an accident that people will take the mark. It's not going to be an accident. You just don't get into a wrong line, you know, and then one day, Oh, I didn't want that, you know. It's not going to be an accident. You all understand that, okay? So it's not an accident if you take the mark of the beast. It will be a blatant statement against the true and the living God. Well, I didn't bring this up at the time, but it is immensely significant that in Revelation 13, verse 16, where it says... He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Of course, the false prophet, you know, for, you know, representing the beast, as it were. But, but the implication of this verse here, in the Greek, in the Greek language, the implication is that each person will place the mark on themselves. That's the implication here. That they will place the mark on themselves. Now, that means that those who take the mark do so, allowing it into their lives, uh, mostly unforced. Mostly unforced. Some possibly will be forced to some degree until they finally say, yeah, okay, I'll do it, rather than just say, I will not do it. Because they may not stand for anything. Believers in Jesus Christ will not take it because they believe in Jesus Christ. So there might be those that might just come to the fact that if I don't take this mark, I won't eat tomorrow. And they take it. But nonetheless, once they take it, they've just placed judgment upon themselves. Because either way, if they refuse that mark, it will cost them their lives. But spiritually speaking, it will cost them their spiritual life, for they will be cast into utter darkness, never to see the glorious light of God again. So let, let's look at our text one more time, uh, verses 9 through 11. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, which, which the implication is that they place it themselves upon it, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. There's no getting around that not to get judgment, Okay. Uh, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. We sometimes hear things like this and we wonder where is the love of God? All this torment, all this judgment, all this Fire and brimstone, whatever. Where is the love of God? Where did it go? Well, he is still the God of love, isn't he? Our God is still the God of love. The scriptures tell us that. But he is also a holy God. And the scriptures tell us he's not only holy, he is holy, holy, holy. Read Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, 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 the angels cried out. And therefore, he must deal with sin, or else he would not be God. The Lord gets no joy. Uh, Folks, you've got to understand the Lord gets no joy in sending people to hell, and the reality is that he doesn't send anyone to hell. That's the reality. Our God does not send anyone to hell. Men go there themselves by their own choice. God has provided every way possible for man not to go to hell. In fact, it is very difficult to get there, but if you work hard enough and if you try hard enough, you'll make it there and end up in the lake of fire, which is and outer darkness. But I don't want you to blame God. I want anybody to blame God. Don't blame God for that. It's a person's choice. Listen to the heart of God as He cries out to His own people, Israel, and to a world in rebellion today. He's not only crying out to Israel, but to the world today. But in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, look at what He says. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure. Look at what He says. I have no pleasure in the death of... Of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? To his own people, he said, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Oh, how the Lord continues to patiently and lovingly knock on the doors of people's hearts that they might open them and receive Christ fully and completely in their lives for eternity. Well, we have to close here. So let's let's consider verses 12 and 13 and close here with this. Because what John says is, here is the patience of the saints. Here is the endurance and the perseverance of the saints. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Now, that's not to say that people who die in the Lord today are not blessed. They are blessed. But the context has to do with the tribulation and the tribulation period and those who are who have come into Christ and into the knowledge of Christ through that time. So while things will be so bad during the tribulation period, the blessing for believers in that time will be seen in their death. The death of the physical body, but eternity in Christ. Those who die during the tribulation period in Christ will now find their rest. Because they're going to have to go through so much, so much more than really what we go through as Whatever is called persecution since the time of the early church. But what a comfort this will be for the tribulation saints. Now, now in Hebrews chapter 6, this is what we're told. We're going to close in the book of Hebrews. So if you'll turn there, Hebrews 6 verses 9 through 12. Notice what, what Paul says. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So he's talking about salvation, but not only salvation, but the things that accompany salvation. And he says, "...for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." I read all of that because I want to focus on on this issue of not being sluggish don 't be sluggish in your faith don 't be sluggish in your in your service to christ don 't be sluggish in, in in your in your ministry because every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ has been given a ministry. Some of us know what that is, others are still trying to discover it and was, you know I mean you need to pray and you need to ask the Lord to open. Uh, give you wisdom about it, but but the point is, each and every one of us can, uh, you know, receive that, but we can at times get sluggish. Sluggish in our faith, sluggish in our work, sluggish in in in, in, in just acting out the, the things of Christ. He says, imitate those who through faith and patience. Notice that, you know, Paul doesn't ever really separate faith and patience. We need to have patience in our faith. We need to trust the Lord. Have you ever seen how much impatience Christians have? How, how, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a level of impatience in a lot of Christians. As a matter of fact, even when they ask for patience, they're impatient. Lord, give me patience, and give it to me now. You know, and that that's kind of sounds funny, but the point is, we have to wait upon the Lord. Aren't we told in in, in Isaiah 40, verse 31, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait on the Lord. Be patient. And inherit the promises, as it says. As Christians today, we are to press on. We are to forge ahead. For there is for us a day of rest. The day of rest is coming. See, today we, we are at rest spiritually because we are in Christ, but the work continues. So our rest, when it finally happens, you know, when, when, when the, the, the consummation of the ages come, then we really will rest. When we get to be with the Lord forever, we rest. That's why Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden in your flesh and in the things that you're doing and in your burdens and trials. Come to me and I'll give you rest. That doesn't mean you stop working. No, you keep working until that day when you are with him and you will rest. So there is that day of rest. But while there is work to be done, we must be about our father's business, not sitting back in relaxation mode, but diligent for the day of the Lord's return is fast approaching. I know that I've been quoting this on Sundays uh, over the last few weeks, and it says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Hebrews ten twenty four. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. If you aren't considering one another uh, and stirring up love and good works with each other, then what are you doing? God is saying, I've, I've given you the church so that you can start working for me. You don't just work outside of the church, you need to work inside of the church too. And you need to be an encourager. And you need to be an exhorter. And you need to be one who, you know, I mean, you, you, you work and come alongside the weak and help them and strengthen them. Your example will be one of great, great hope for others. At least it should be. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, I would tell you this, if you look at the world today, you're seeing the day of Christ approaching. If you are looking at the evil in this world and the wickedness that's going on, if you're looking at all of the, uh, the, the instabilities that are going on in all of these countries and nations across the whole of the planet, know that that is something that was already prophesied in the scriptures that says, look, because your redemption draws near. Jesus is coming. And don't hide your head in the sand. He's coming. So much the more as you see the day approaching, the day of Christ, the day when He comes for His church, that day that He describes in John chapter 14, I quote it to you all the time because I want to encourage you to realize the words of Jesus are not to be taken lightly. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am there, you will be also. Jesus says, I want you to be with me. That's where you'll find your rest that's where you'll find your rest. Let me close with this passage. And at the end of chapter 10, <coughs> beginning with verse 36, Paul says, For you have need of endurance. Gotta put patience in there too. You have need of patience, endurance, perseverance. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. I mean, that, that makes sense. After you've done the will of God in this life, you'll receive the promise. But you need patience. And then he says, for yet a little while, he's uh, he's quoting, when you see the italics, it means he's quoting from the Old Testament. He says, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. In other words, he's coming, and he's coming soon. He's not going to delay. And then it says, now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If anyone draws back, how about what Peter said in Second Peter? Where's the promise of his coming? I don't want to draw back. I'm ready for him to come now. So don't draw back. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, which is what? Lostness. We are not of those who draw back, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. These are important issues as believers to have and to stand upon as we look for the day of Christ to come. So I've tried here with, with this passage in, in, in Revelation 14 to not only look at what is coming and yet to, to keep uh, current our own attitudes, our own ways of living, our own ways of dealing with the issues of life, our own ways of telling others about the Lord, of just being an example to others. And of taking every opportunity, when the opportunity is given, to tell people about Jesus Christ. And, and you know, pray. Pray about it. But then act upon it. Act upon it. And be what God has called you to be. So, next time we're going to go ahead and do our best to close out chapter 14. Because there's a lot yet left to go and we want to finish Revelation before the rapture of the church uh, or, or I should say before the end of 2014. So, Alright, let's pray.